Have you ever known someone who you see them? Maybe they're a friend, maybe they're just an acquaintance, maybe they're just someone that you know. But there's these certain people that it seems like that everything always works out for them. It just works out. They just, I don't know what it is. It's just, man, they are blessed. They are blessed. It seems that things always work out for them. It seems that they're always getting the raise. They're always getting the job, the promotion, the great deal on their new car, um, the tickets to the game. It seems that uh, they just have some type of special favor. Uh, and it leads us to a question. What is it? What is favor? Favor to me is and looking at it from a biblical standpoint, amen? Favor to me is having God's undeserving, unmerited blessings surround you like a force field because you are his child, a child of the most high God, the creator of the entire world, the master of everything. He's your Lord, he's your savior, and you're in him, amen? Favor, let me say it this way, favor is the grace and mercy of God. It's the grace and mercy of God in our lives. All the following statements that I'm going to say right now describe favor to me, and in all cases, favor from God. Now, when you talk about favor, sometimes it can seem like, well, that's kind of a petty thing. But God's into small things, amen? God's into small things and a little bit bigger things and medium-sized things and great big things that he wants to do in our lives. So favor is being in the right place at the right time because God had you right there when you needed to be, amen? Favor is getting a front row parking spot sometimes, amen? My mom used to pray all the time, God, give us a great parking spot. And then just somebody would pull out right near the front of the store, there we were, and God, we'd be praising God before we'd go into the store to shop, amen? Favor is being the last one in a long checkout line at the grocery store, and just then, a new cashier comes on duty and says, oh, I can take you right over here, sir. <laughs> Have you ever been that person? That's beautiful. Favor is when people just seem to want to help you. Favor is being a victor and not a victim. Amen? Favor is sometimes getting free tickets to a game. This has happened like throughout my life. I mean, I'm born and raised in a Christian home, and I could tell you story after story. Let me tell you a story about a time when we were going, this was back when I was 15 years old, and my dad was gonna take me to a Christian concert, a Christian rock concert, with a band called Petra, back in the 80s, okay? And we went up to, in Maryland, uh, a place called Meriwether Post Pavilion, which is kind of one of those uh, outside amphitheater type things. I mean, they have, I think there's one in West Palm, Coral Sky, and. Um, the one over in Tampa, I forget what that one's called, Credit, something Credit Union or Ford or something. I, I've lost track with all the sponsors. But anyways, so we're, we're going up there. We don't have tickets. We're walking up, and there's this gentleman. There's this whole pathway going up to the pavilion, and there's a crowd. Just we're walking on the path. There's one guy walking down the path. 
going in the opposite direction. And I don't know if he just singled us out or spotted us. He says, hey, do you guys need tickets? And we were like, yeah. And he said, here you go. And we walked right into the thing, and we got down to our seats, and it was like seventh row, like right in the center. Amen? Later in life, I'm going up. I'm taking my son to is gonna, what's going to be his very first baseball game. It happened. We were in Anaheim, California, so we are going to an Angels game. We walk up. We take one step up onto the curb where you're like right, if you know Angel Stadium, it's the big stadium that has the two angel hats out front with the bats. And we stepped up onto the curb in front of the thing, and a guy came up to us and said, do you guys need some tickets? And we were like, yeah, sure. And so he gave us some tickets. So walked walked in to the stadium, and I said, well, we got free tickets, so Trey, what do you want? And got him a hat, cotton candy, the whole, the whole nine yards. Favor is the gift of eternal life. Favor is forgiveness of our sins. Favor is Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. Favor is finding a wife. Amen? I'll throw it on the screen. It's Proverbs 18.22. It says this, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and gets favor from the Lord. Amen? Favor is God giving you everything in this life that he can give you without harming you. Favor is being a friend of God. Favor is being able to breathe right now. Amen? The favor of God, the grace of God. Favor is having true peace and happiness that can in no way be obtained by anything in this world. James tells us in James chapter 1, verse 17, I'll also have that on the screen behind me, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like the shifting shadows. There are many people that are literally right at the doorway of God's favor, but they have not entered into it. They're close to it. They're almost there. They're right at the doorway, but they haven't entered in to receive God's favor. They're perhaps waiting on the outside, and they don't know even why or what they're waiting for. But for whatever reason, they can't or won't enter through the doorway of God's favor. Tonight, we're going to take a look at a passage of Scripture that talks to us about the favor of God and and coming into the favor of God, the grace of God. Our text today is the passage of Scripture where there is a man who is has an infirmity, and he is in this place, it's actually called the Pool of Bethesda, and there he is at this pool, and there's many other people that are infirmed, and they're just waiting for the favor of God. They're just waiting, and then Jesus steps into the situation for this one gentleman and shows us how to receive that favor. So let's take a look at this tonight, God's favor. The first point tonight, if you're taking notes, is how can you enter into the favor of God? Obey Christ's command. Let's pick it up. Verse 1 of John 5. It says this, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 
Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water, and then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. So if we're going to enter into God's favor, we, we must obey the command of Christ. First, to enter through the doorway of God's favor, you must obey the command of Christ. If you're gonna see God's grace and mercy in your life, you must obey Christ's command. If you're going to receive God's grace and mercy, you have to obey first the gospel, right? There is this concept, there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation, but there is a, an, obey, a, an obedience to the gospel. There is coming to repentance. There is putting yourself in that place so that you can receive what God has for you. You've got to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many people today want to have God's favor in their life. They want God to act and move in their life, but God is looking for those who will obey his command, who will first obey the gospel. He's looking for those who will obey the gospel. After Jesus healed, the, in the context of this passage in John chapter five, Jesus had healed the nobleman's son and there was a feast of the Jews in Jerusalem. So this passage in John chapter five opens up and there was a feast of the Jews. Now Jesus was just in Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. He went up to Galilee and now he's come back to Jerusalem because you got about, if you go to Passover in Jerusalem, then you got about 50 days, but then you got to be back in Jerusalem again for Pentecost, right? And so there was this other feast, the Feast of Pentecost. Now in Jerusalem, you had, there's a wall around the city, right? And this passage tells us that by the sheep gate was a pool called Bethesda. So around the wall of the city, you had different gates that you could come into the city. And there was this one particular gate called the sheep gate. And right by this sheep gate, there was a pool called Bethesda. Uh, now, now, Jesus is a, a, a miracle worker, amen? Jesus is coming on the scene and he is performing miracles. He's, he's changed the water into wine. He's done all kinds of things, right? And now he's going to continue to do those good things. And John has written his gospel to kind of catalog some of these things so that we could have faith in Christ so that we could have everlasting life. 
So we have this catalog. Now John says, now if I had written all the things that Jesus said, it would have filled up many, many books. It would be two books. I mean, you know, you, you sit down. I, 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 I almost can feel like I can relate at least on a certain level to the, to the gospel writers because they sat down to write a book about Jesus. And John sat down to write a book about Jesus, and he said, look, if I had written everything about Jesus, it wouldn't have been one book, it'd be many, many books, right? The world could not contain all the books that would be written. And I remember feeling a little bit overwhelmed myself when I sat down to write a book about Jesus, because you're gonna write a book about Jesus, and like, what, what do you put in, and what, what do you leave out? I mean, what, and, and, and you better be right, you know, on a lot of this stuff, and, you know, I'm probably, you know, wrong on some of the speculative points, but anyways, it's a challenging task, but these guys were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writing Holy Scripture. And John, kind of summarizing the purpose of his book, he tells us that in John chapter 20, verse 31, I'm going to throw that on the screen behind me. He says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so that's the purpose that John is writing to us and has written the, this account in John chapter 5. Now, the sheep gate is mentioned back in Nehemiah chapter three. When Remember when Nehemiah was the one that uh, brought a, uh, a remnant, a contingency back to rebuild the wall and the city. And, and in Nehemiah three, they were rebuilding the walls and they started at the sheep gate. This is the gate through which the sacrificial animals were brought in to, to go into Jerusalem and eventually go up to the temple for sacrifice. So, of course, the lamb was the, the predominant sacrificial animal, and so the gate is the sheep gate, right? So, and by this doorway, by this gate, you had a pool. The pool was called Bethesda, which in Hebrew means mercy. So, get this picture here, okay? By the sheep gate, where the sacrificial animals are brought in for sacrifice, you have a pool called mercy, so it's really this little snapshot, this picture where the sacrificial animals and mercy are kind of just all in this picture here for us. Um, and it's through the sacrifice of Jesus being the lamb, right, that we can obtain the mercy of God, the mercy and grace of God. Now, there were lame people. The Bible says there were lame people. Now, they were just not uncool, they had infirmities, amen? You understand what I'm saying? You know, they were lame, and, and they were in these five porches surrounding the pool, and in, in all these porches, you had these sick and infirm people. And what they would do, these sick people, they would wait for the water, to, there would, uh, an angel would come down and trouble the water. And evidently, in this situation here that we have at the pool of Bethesda, the first one to get down into the water was healed. And this was the situation. Now, you have all these lame people by this pool called Mercy. And if they could just get into the pool, they would be healed. Now, what is this all about? Well, there's a lot there, but I think there's a picture of something here. 
one of the pictures that we can see is a lot of times people's faith is, it, it can be kind of in a passive mode where you're just kind of like, I got faith, but I'm just kind of lounging here, right? And then there's kind of what we might call a faith in action or an active faith where I'm actually literally doing something because I have faith. And God um, a lot of times you see people that are healed in the scripture and people that are receiving the favor of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God are people that have kind of that faith in action, so to speak. And, um, and so God wants us to, uh, to kind of press through in that sense. Um, you have the example in the, in the gospels of the woman who had the issue of blood. And I think it was for 12 years she had this issue of blood, right? And the text there tells us that she, there's a huge crowd. People are all pressing in around Jesus. And what does this woman do? She presses through the crowd, you know, and she gets all the way up and she, she says to herself, if I could just reach out and touch the hem of his garment, I can be healed, right? And so she does this. She perseveres to press through the crowd. And, you know, there's a lot of people that might have, in that situation, given up. Said, oh, I don't know, it's impossible. There's nothing I could do. But, but this woman does that, and she, and she touches the hem of his garment, and she's healed. And, and of course, the Lord uh, senses he feels the power uh, to, to go out of him, I guess, in that sense, to heal her. And he says, who touched me? Right? And the disciples look at him like, Jesus, you know, we, we love you, but, you know, you're crazy because look at all these people. What do you mean who touched you? No, 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 no. Someone touched me. Someone reached out to touch me in an active faith in order to be healed. And so I think there's this kind of this, God wants our faith to kind of be activated in that sense. Amen? And so uh, in the New Testament, James tells us, uh, and I'll have the verse up on the screen, James 5, uh, 14. He says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And so not only do you have kind of this um, put upon the person to pursue, to actively go and yes, please pray for me, but then you also have this anointing of the oil, which is kind of a point of contact. And so you can see that where they, were, they had to activate their faith and they had to literally get into the water for them to be healed. Now, there was a particular man that we read about in this passage here, a man who was lame for infirmed for 38 years and he was unable to be healed. He remained in that condition for a very long time. And Jesus, on that particular day, comes up to this man. It's almost kind of like, you know, it might seem like, a, like just a random person, right? I mean, there were all kinds of people, right, there. But Jesus walks up to this guy, this guy that's been there for 38 years. He asks him, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made well? Well, of course, right? Of course I want to be made well. And he answered Jesus and he said, I, 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 I can't because I can't, there's no one to help me get down into the water. And by the time I kind of 
muster down there? I, 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 I'm, I'm too late. I'm too late. He couldn't make it into the pool. And there might be something that you think is hindering you from receiving the grace of God or the mercy of God or something from God that you feel um, that you're lacking in your life. And there may be something that um, is inhibiting you. But let me tell you this. It is only simply um, you just listening to Christ when he speaks to you and doing what he commands you to do. It is that simple. It doesn't necessarily mean God is going to heal in every situation. It doesn't mean that God is going to grant you your every wish, right? He's not like a genie in a, in a lamp. He's God, and he has a perfect will, and he has a, a purpose and a plan in your life, and he wants his glory to be seen in you. And so we have to look at our lives as simply being that person that says, yes, Lord, whatever you want me to do, God, I want to do that. So Jesus provides the point of contact through a direct command for this man to be healed. Jesus told the man, he says, rise, take up your bed and walk. And he obeyed Christ's command. He obeyed Christ's command. Verse 9 tells us that he immediately was healed. He took up his bed and walked. The key to walking through the doorway of God's mercy and grace in your life is obeying the command of Christ. When the command comes, just obey the voice of the Lord. When the command of Christ, when the voice of Christ speaks to you, just obey the voice and the command of Christ. Just when, just exactly like when we hear the call of Christ to call us to salvation, right? I mean, the call goes out. The call of Christ goes out to, from the east to the west to the north to the south. And one day it came to you and Jesus spoke your name. And I like this in the Bible because Jesus knows your name, right? Jesus, Jesus knows everything about you and he knows your name and he, he will call you specifically. And it was just like um, on the morning of the resurrection, right? And when Mary doesn't even know who Jesus is, he thinks he's the gardener. She thinks he's the gardener, right? She's crying. And then when Jesus says her name, she's like, oh, rabbi, teacher, right? Then she knows who it is. And it's exactly like that. When Jesus calls your name, when he gives you that command, just obey the command. This is the key to going through the doorway into God's mercy and grace flowing in our lives. Maybe there has, maybe there is something that has kept us in a defeated state. Maybe there's something, and I see this in, you know, in, in, in people's lives, I see this in people's lives all the time where, where on one side of it, on one thing that they're saying, it's like, I want God to move in my life. I want that favor of God. I want his joy and all the things that he has for me. And on the other side, there's, there's something that they're holding on to that they're not willing to release and, 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 and give up on in their life. And God's simply saying, hey, look, you, you gotta fully surrender to me. You gotta fully give up your life and give it over to me. 
And, 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 and God wants to do that and, and just abundantly pour his blessing into your life. But there's something that people hold on to and it keeps them in a defeated state, even though they know. They know and they're looking around and they're seeing everyone else in that situation. Maybe you have tried. You've, 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 been, you've, you've, you've been in church, you've read the books, you've read the Bible, you've tried you know, all kinds of you know, seminars or whatever it is. It's this simple, I think, in this text. Jesus gives us a command to obey. Do you want to be healed? Then rise, take up your bed and be healed. We've got to obey him. What has Christ commanded you to do specifically? What is it that Christ has commanded you to do? Just respond to the command of Christ. He will give you the capacity to, to, maybe you think, well, God's calling me to do something that I can't do, right? And that's how this man could have felt. I mean, he's already told Jesus, I can't get down to the pool. By the time the pool's already stirred and everything and the whole thing, by the time I get down there, it's over. So, I mean, I can't do it. I can't do it. But, but, and maybe you feel like you can't do it, but can you obey the, 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 the command of Christ? Can you obey the, the command of Christ, that thing that specifically Christ is speaking to you? It seems impossible. We feel like we can't do it. And I think too oftentimes people, instead of just saying, okay, God, what is it you want me to do? We want to argue with God. Why, God, I can't do that. Why don't you, you know? It's so funny because sometimes we argue with God on both sides of it. We argue with God because that's too hard to do. And then, like, you know, remember Naaman, who was the one that wanted to be healed of leprosy? And the servant girl said, well, why don't you call Elisha, the prophet of God, and have him come down here? He can, do, he, he can call on God for you. And, and Elisha doesn't even go all the way in to talk to Naaman. He sends the word, hey, I want you to go dunk yourself in the river. And remember, Naaman complained. He said, go dunk in the river. This river down here, we got better rivers in Syria. So if it's a simple thing, we complain. If it's too hard of a thing, we complain and, and want to argue. Stop it. <laughs> if it's too easy, if it's too hard, just do it. Just obey the command of God, right? This man obeyed Jesus' command. Now I want to look at the condition of these people that were in this, around the pool of Bethesda in those five porches. First, there was a great multitude. The text tells us there was a great multitude of sick people. And the conditions outlined here are the conditions, really, if you look at them, the, the infirmities that they have are literally the conditions of every person that's not in that place of receiving the grace of God. They're not, there's people that are kind of outside of having received the grace and mercy of God in their lives. The King James, if you read, I read this in the New King James, right? Because, you know, King James is great, but it's got all those, you know, these and thous and all that stuff, right? So the New King James is pretty close to the King James, but then there's a couple of words that have been changed as well. If you read this passage in the King James, it says that they were impotent folk. You look it up. It says there was a bunch of impotent folk. 
right? Folk? That don't sound like 1611. That sounds like South Carolina. <laughs> right? But there was some impotent folk. And this term describes generally the condition of every person without the mercy of God. Right? It says they were blind. They were blind people. People today are blind to their tremendous and desperate need of God's love and mercy. They're blind to it. They don't see it. And when Jesus literally comes on the scene, they didn't see him. They couldn't see him. Right? It wasn't what they were expecting. Don't let what you expect in the way of Jesus to come to you get in the way of you seeing Jesus and responding to his voice and obeying his command in your life. Don't let that happen. It says they were lame. They were unable to walk. Without Christ's love and mercy, people are unable to walk with God. Until we receive the grace of God and the mercy of God in our lives, we're not able to walk. We're lame. So we're blind, we're lame. And then it says, the New King James says paralyzed, I believe we read. The King James, now if you read that in the New King James, just how we did, and it says lame and paralyzed, right? It almost seems kind of redundant, right? Well, lame and paralyzed, well, what's the difference? Well, if you read that in the New King James, in the King James, it, it's a little clearer because it actually says, it uses the word, it says withered. It's the idea like where you had a lame man that couldn't walk, you had a person with a withered hand. Later in this same gospel, Jesus actually will heal a man with a withered hand. And the idea there is if a, if a lame man can't walk, the withered man can't work. So we, we, without God's mercy, without God's grace, we can't walk with God. We can't work, do the works that God has prepared in advance that we should do. Paul lays this out in the second chapter of Ephesians. He says, you are God's workmanship and God has prepared in advance good works that you will do. Yes. But, but if we don't have the mercy of God, if we don't have the grace of God, we can't, we can't do those works. We're, we're, we've got the withered hand. So we're blind, we're lame, we're withered. And not only is this the picture of every single person without Christ in their life and without the mercy of God and without the grace of God, it's a, real, it's a picture, too, of the state of the nation of Israel in this exact moment in time when Jesus shows up at the, at, in John chapter 5 at the pool of Bethesda. You had a, a, a nation that had become blind to just everything. <laughs> you know, they had, in fact, they had the Pharisees that were leading them. And Jesus put it this way, it's the blind... Leading the blind. 
Can you imagine? This is the scene that Jesus, the son of God, God steps down off of his throne, puts on flesh, is born in a cave, grows up, and it's the blind leading the blind. <laughs> this is the situation. So you had blind, and, and, and then you had, they were lame. <laughs> they were lame in so many ways, right? I mean, they, 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 they did not, walk with God, there was a remnant of people, there was a remnant of God-fearing, right? There's, there's always a remnant, even, even if you look at the days of Elisha, or Elijah, when it got down to this very narrow, small remnant, Elijah literally wanted to give up. He's like, look, I don't even, just take me out of here. I don't want to even do this anymore. No one serves you, God. And God says, no, there's still 7,000. Right? So there's always a remnant. But then you look at the nation as a whole. Lame. And withered. And, the, and they were just waiting. They were just waiting. They were waiting for the promised Messiah to come. Now, if you read the Old Testament, does this sound to you like the type of lives that people who were blessed to be in the nation of Israel should be living. Does that describe the, the, the lives of the, of, the, of, of the people of God? The chosen people, the people that were the seed of Abraham, the people that were the seed of Isaac and Jacob and, and, the, and, the, and the tribes and the nation that was developed and, and they were given the, the, you know, the, the, the articles of God, the oracles of God, they were given, they were, it was given to them through the, administered by the angels, the law of God. They were blessed in so many ways, right? We were talking about in Romans, right? Where they were, they were, they had all these advantages and somehow not one of the advantages had kind of, trickled down. Whose fault is that? Right? They were waiting. They were infirmed and they were waiting. The Old Testament that I have read is filled with the promise of blessing. You don't have to get to even to the New Testament. Now the New Testament is just blessing on on, on, on steroids or something, right? It's grace, it's grace upon grace, right? John says in this gospel. It's grace upon grace. Because we have Jesus and we have the blood of Christ and we have the perfect sacrifice that has finished the work and he's risen from the dead and, and, and he's alive in us. So it's, it's grace upon grace that we have in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, there was blessing too. You know, there were, there were, there were, read, I believe it's Deuteronomy 28, right? Read the whole chapter. These are the blessings. If you'll be the, if you'll be my people, if you'll, if you'll, if you'll keep this covenant, if you'll be, obey my people. I, I remember when, when uh, I went to, in, in our church in Orlando, we had, and I've told you this story before, so I won't belabor the whole story, but we had, I, I actually, through, through just the grace of God, I was able to invite a gentleman to our church. I, I, at the time, I didn't know who it was. It turned out to be a guy who was an NFL player, and he had played 11 seasons for the Seattle Seahawks. And 
it, it turned out that we became friends and, and um, he got elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And I remember it was the day before the Super Bowl. It was today, it was this day, but like back a few years. And I was having lunch with Cortez. And I said, and we're sitting there and he's getting all these phone calls from, I think one of the guys was from the Kansas City Chiefs. Remember Willie Rofe? Willie Rofe called him while I was standing, while we were sitting there and eating at Lake Nona. And I told Cortez, I said, if you, if you get that call tomorrow, I want to let you know right now that we're going to Canton. You're going to Canton and we're all going to Canton. I'm going to be there. And sure enough, the next day he got the call. He was, he was elected into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And so we went to Canton, Ohio to see Cortez inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Now, when I went there and we got there, in, in the class that he was brought in with, there was another football player, Curtis Martin. You ever remember Curtis Martin? I think he played for the Jets. And I think he played maybe a season or two for the Patriots. Look it up. I'm not sure. Can't remember. You can Google it, right? <laughs> and his number was 28. And they had this little inside the hall, they had this little section that was set up for the new enshrinees. And by the, the place for Curtis Martin, he had his Bible in this, in this encasement. And it had Curtis Martin's Bible. And it was opened up to Deuteronomy 28. And that was his number. And he would, he would read that passage every Sunday in, in his locker room with his Bible. And what's that passage, Deuteronomy 28? It's the blessings of God that will be upon you if you serve him. Amen? So the life of the, a, a person that comes to God, that's around God, and, 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 and answers to the call of God and the command of God is a, is a blessed life. Is a blessed life. And yet, and yet Jesus comes on the scene and this John, um, John chapter 5 is this picture of these infirmed people waiting by a pool and the representative of the infirmed nation uh, that, that they're there with. And, um, and so now this man that Jesus healed on this particular day, and you maybe have heard me say this before, but the text is very specific. Let's, let's go back and read it. Verse. Oh, where is it? Verse four. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water, and then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well from whatever disease he had. Verse five. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. 38 years. Now, in my, all of my study through Scripture for, 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 for a few decades now, right? I'm, a, I'm older than I look. Praise the Lord. Praise God. I've had a young baby face look for a long time, and I always knew it was going to pay off <laughs> at some point, Right? Whenever you come to like numbers like that, like 
there's, the, the, there's details there that the Holy Spirit gives us, but there's some significance. 38 years, you have the state of Israel living in this infirm state. 38 years, as it were, is the exact amount of time that Israel spent wandering around the desert. Now you say, no, it wasn't. It was 40 years, right? No, because the first, they were called out of Egypt. God brought them to a mountain, Sinai. They were there at Sinai, receiving from the Lord, receiving the law, receiving the instructions for the priesthood, receiving the instructions for the tabernacle and all of it for at least a year and a half. So that by the time they went up to Kadesh Barnea to go in to possess the land, it was getting close to somewhere between a year and a half and two years that that they had been there as they were called out of Egypt, right? Of course, we know what happened. They didn't believe the good report of the two of the 12 spies that were sent in, Caleb and Joshua came back with the positive report that yes, there are giants in the land and we're like grasshoppers and everything, it's crazy, but God has given us the land. And they were fearful and they didn't believe. And so when you look at that situation, what was it that kept Israel from going in and receiving the favor of God? God had given them a promised land. This is the land that I have promised to your seed, Abraham. And he brings them out of Egypt, brings them right to the door. And they just got to go through. And what happened? They didn't believe. And God said, okay. Okay, you don't want to believe the command. You're going to wander around in this desert. And, and God was actually kind of brutal. In, in, in the way that only God can, you know, he can say it the way he wants to say it, right? And you can read it in the passage. He says, look, your carcasses will be on this desert floor. Right? They said, we repent, forgive us. Ugh. And it's not that God didn't want to give grace, but they had hardened their hearts. And so they wandered around for 38 years. And then a man rose up that took the place of Moses named Joshua. Literally the name of Jesus in the Old Testament is Joshua. And it's literally Joshua, it's Yeshua, who literally takes them across the river, across the Jordan, into the promised land, takes them into the promises of God, a land flowing with milk and honey to receive the grace. They lived in, in, in houses they didn't build. They, they ate from, from lands and vineyards that they didn't plant. And God poured out his abundant blessing. And how do we come to be in that position? We come to that place by heeding the word of Christ, heeding the word of Jesus, amen? And then we wrap up this section. So, we obey the command of Christ, right? And then we confess the Lord Jesus. Let's finish it up. Verse 10. It says this. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. And he answered them, 
He who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. And then they asked him, who is this man that said this to you? Take up your bed and walk. But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to them, see, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. And the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. Now, it's just like the Pharisees to uh, try to nail someone on the violation of the Sabbath, right? You're going to nail this guy for being healed on the Sabbath and carrying his bed out of there, right? As if the Sabbath, as if the Lord, <laughs> when he made the world in six days and rested on the seventh and said, I'm resting now. Now I want you to rest. As if somehow all these thousands of years later, Jesus would come on the scene and, and it would be violated, a violation of the Sabbath for him to carry his bed that he had just been healed after laying there for 38 years. So this is, this is where the Pharisees had figured out. They wanted to keep this letter and tradition of the law so closely, but find a way to ultimately do all the things that they wanted to too. So don't think for a second that the Pharisees had this kind of like, you know, prim and proper, and we don't carry our beds on the Sabbath. And what are you doing? Who was it that healed you? We, we tithe even the, you know, the, the spices, the mint and the cumin. You know, right? They had figured out how to commit adultery by divorcing their wives. Right? You go to that chapter where Jesus' question this is, this is the heart of what he's, he's saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I know what's going on. You're divorcing your wives so that you can get, okay? And then they're doing other things. Honoring your father and mother, right? They said, they, the command to honor your father and mother, they said, oh, well, we can't do that because we've committed this to the Lord, and then they would never give that to the Lord, even though they said they had given it, but that then they had found a way to circumvent the law, right? So they had come up and created these workarounds. And you know what? God is just interested in us giving our lives to him and confessing him as Lord and Savior. Jesus came back to the man and he told him, sin no more. After this, the man went back to the Jews and told them it was Jesus who had healed him, who had told him to take up his bed and walk. And so the man did two things. In, his, in this situation, he obeyed the voice of God. He obeyed the command of Christ. 
and he confessed the Lord Jesus. He went back and he said, oh yeah, it was Jesus who told me. It was Jesus who told me. Right? And this is a, this is a lesson for us in our life. Now the confession of Christ in our life, you say, you know, Paul put it this way in Romans 10. Right? If you believe in your heart, uh, the Lord Jesus, if you, try, if, you, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved, right? If you confess the Lord Jesus. If you confess, if, if there's a confession of the Lord Jesus in your life. Now I tell people this all the time. This is not an act of linguistic linguistics. As if confessing the Lord Jesus is some type of a magical words, uh, an incantation of sorts. No. It is literally confessing your allegiance and, your, and, and putting your trust and fully surrendering your life. I am confessing the Lord Jesus. It is Jesus who told me to pick up my mat and walk and healed me. It is Jesus in my life. And that's not something that I do once when I get saved, but a confession of the Lord Jesus is something that is just a characteristic of my life, my day-to-day life. And so the question is, are you, are you hearing the voice of Christ? Are you obeying the command of Christ? And are you confessing the Lord Jesus in your life? And I believe that this passage here will tell us it's not always going to be. Jesus never promised us, you know, a complete primrose path, right? But, But he did promise us the blessings of following him, the promises that he has given us. He did promise us a joy unspeakable and full of glory. Amen? And so if you want that, if you want that in your life, then you've got got the word there tonight.